If he'd only gotten his sightseeing done by himself, Tom thought, if only he hadn't been in such a hurry and so greedy, if he only hadn't misjudged the relationship between Dickie and Marge so stupidly, or had simply waited for them to separate of their own volition, then none of this would have happened, and he could have lived with Dickie for the rest of his life traveled and lived and enjoyed living for the rest of his life if only he hadn't put on dickie's clothes that day i understand tommy boy i really do peter said patting his shoulder tom looked up at him through distorting tears he was imagining traveling with dickie on some liner back to america for christmas holiday imagining being on good terms with dickie's parents as if he and dickie had been brothers Hello listener, Jesse here, and before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that due to a technical problem, we had to use a combination of the Zoom chat recording in addition to my home recording. As such, you'll occasionally hear an echo in moments when I'm talking and it's hard to mute the Zoom recording. Sorry about that. I won't go into detail about the technical specifics of why we had to do this or who was responsible. <coughs> Respect! <coughs> Sorry, I had something in my throat there. Anyway, rest assured, the top minds at Upper Middle Brow are working on the problem, and we expect to bring you Chris Bagg's delightfully melodious baritone in all its well-recorded glory for the next episode. Until then, please enjoy part two of The Talented Mr. Ripley on Upper Middle Brow. You know, and as part of our opening ramble, I wanted to touch base about your tomato sauce from the other night. Ah. Um, and I wanted to hear how that came out, uh, especially if you did add anything like grape jelly to it. Well, I don't have any grape jelly, um, but what I did use, and it was a little bit of your suggestion, um, I used a little bit, just a tiny touch of apple cider vinegar because I didn't have any red wine vinegar. Uh, and then about a tablespoon of dry vermouth, um, which is clear, but it's a little grapey, uh, and it's definitely a little bit sweet. And I would say it turned out really well. Nice. That's cool. awesome. Yeah. Cool. A little acid always helps uh, when you are um, making something like that, which is weird because I also told you to add some sugar to cut yeah. down on the tomato acid, but then just a little brightening kind of acid at the end of your cooking of any kind of sauce really does... Uh, really does make things quite a bit better. It is, Yeah, and it's interesting. And I don't know, I mean, part of I think what I like about red wine in my pasta sauce is there's just a, a, a smell. But I do think there's something about the tannins that is part of why you do that. I also like how it just darkens the sauce a little bit. I like it visually, aesthetically. So it didn't have that. But I, I thought it was a very good sauce. I usually do about 50-50 Roma tomatoes and 50-50 paste and then smash them all up together. And I don't... Uh, I don't like tomato. I'm one of those people who loves tomato flavor, but is grossed out by like raw tomato texture. So I, I smash them good. All right. I think, uh, yeah, next May when it's your birthday again, I'm going to send you a food mill. Okay. Oh, yeah. Food or, mill or, better, or better yet, an immersion blender. I mean, I guess I could, sending you a food mill is like, I hear you like computers, so I'm going to send you a typewriter. <laughs> I mean, a food mill sounds kind of neat. 
Um, what I do use, I do not own a blender. What I do own is my grandmother's like roughly 1950s era, like yellow molded plastic food processor, which is a badass. Actually, like kind of the other day you were talking about making smoothies and I was like, oh, I haven't had a smoothie in a while. So I bought some bananas and made some peanut butter banana smoothies with it. And it just with a little bit of yogurt and it just turned them into this wonderful cream in like no time. So good. yeah, in seconds. Um, yeah, I, I, I bet the 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 yeah, there's a part of me that wants to run to the kitchen and grab my KitchenAid, which uh, I bought at a flea market in Washington, D.C. In, in It had to have been 2001, 2002. And it was sort of yellowing and old at that point yeah and that motherfucker is still going let's let's do it man let's have a let's have a kitchen aid off let's just go just go This is great podcasting right here. Yours looks a little newer than mine. Yeah, well, this is, it's not a it's not a 50s for sure, but it's it's probably it's probably an 80s. This looks like the one. Whoa, look at yours. Yours looks like a fucking Dalek. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It's Hamilton Beach. I, I do think this may be from I mean, look at this fake wood paneling like on the sort of decal on the front. Holy crap. Um, uh, really, that when that thing starts, when that when you walk into the kitchen and that thing starts sell, saying "exterminate" at you, uh, yeah. it's it's time to kill it. But uh, I fucking love that thing. Yeah, is there some horror movie where that happens, where it like goes crazy? Oh, and, wow. Okay, we're uh, gonna have to uh, uh, we're gonna have to talk about Doctor Who at some point, Daleks. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm not a Doctor Who guy. I'm not a Hoosier or whatever it's called. Uh, Hoosian. Okay, here we are. Uh, we are doing the second half of The Talented Mr. Ripley by yeah. the masterful Patricia Highsmith. And as we do every night uh, when we have this show, we are going to stumble through a second half recap of this book. Um, I think you had to go first last time. I'm not going to look at my notes. I know that you don't uh, look at your notes for this. Uh, so I'll kind of get things going. Although if there ever was a plot where you might want notes, this might be this might be it. Yeah, I, I had to take some notes this morning, mostly to back up what I'm going to try to say during the episode today. Sure. Um, yeah, we pick up with uh, Tom Ripley having just disposed of poor Freddie Miles, uh, mm. who was uh, getting wise to Tom's shenanigans. Um, and was maybe starting to figure things out. So um, Tom has killed Freddie and uh, kind of wrestles his body down the stairs after the sun has gone down, um, pretending that Freddie is drunk, uh, gets him in a car, deposits him somewhere out of town, um, and then returns to- On the Appian Way, no less. On the Appian Way, yes, exactly. Uh, Patricia Highsmith, no- uh, no stranger to wanting to get in kind of tourist attractions in, in the <laughs> books. Um, I love that these books are like, like a tourist's guide to horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go to beautiful places in Europe and kill people? 
You know, I mean, arguably she's following in somewhat backwards, but following backwards the footsteps of Agatha Christie in that regard, too. We talked about this last time, how this is kind of an, a, a mystery in reverse, which is yeah. which is kind of in, impressive that, that she has kind of invented a genre. But uh, anyway, um, we get back to, um, at the moment, Tom is staying in a hotel or an apartment? Apartment, I believe. We're in Rome. Um, well, no, he moved out of Dickie's apartment into a hotel. Um, he, does after, he does after he talks to the police. Yeah. Police come and talk That's to him right. in, All right. so he's, he's Dickie's in Dickie's apartment. apartment. And it's very important. He is pretending still to be Dickie at this point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Fausto, his, uh, his Italian teacher from Mangibello, uh, shows up and Tom has to kind of put him off, um, even though Fausto is very insistent and uh, puts him off and manages to not allow Fausto to come up. Uh, an investigator arrives. Um, Tom also answers a call from a, a character named uh, Van Houten, uh, who's sort of uh, super sad about uh, Freddie's murder. Um, and um, Tom asks the investigators if he can travel to Mallorca. Uh, the investigators say, no, we'd really prefer if you stay in Italy. Um, and Tom kind of takes advantage of that to remove to Naples, I believe, on his way to Sicily. Um, he does get the, the investigators do um, ask him about uh, the boat. Which, uh, which has been discovered in San Remo, the boat that uh, Tom killed Dickie in. Um, and uh, yeah, as Tom heads off to Sicily, I will uh, kick it on back to you. Yeah, and I will have to say, like, I, I read a lot of this a couple weeks ago, and it's really hard for me to remember the details because one version of this plot could just be Tom visits several cities in Italy and then goes to Greece, the end. Like that is one way of describing the second half of the book. Um, there, there is some, you know, people wrangling that he has to do. If I remember correctly, though, he goes to Sicily or maybe it's Sardinia. And there he's still impersonating Dickie. And he continues doing some forgeries and he continues writing some letters, but he makes sure that he's seen there as Dickie, as a kind of alibi for Dickie still being alive at this point because he's starting to come to the conclusion in his head that he's probably going to have to make it look... He can't go on pretending to be Dickie forever. Eventually he'll get caught at that because somebody who actually knows Dickie will show up. And so... At some point, Dickie will have to vanish. So he kind of makes sure he's seen there and writes some letters and things like that to establish that Dickie uh, was in Sicily. I think it was Sicily. And then, if I'm remembering correctly, he decides he's going to go to Venice. And he is a little bit nervous. And I think he's kind of wondering, like, am I just going to, is this just going to be like every other place where you go there and you think it's going to be great and it's kind of terrible. But very quickly, he actually is sort of like, I really like Venice. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, he goes to Venice as Tom Ripley. Um, and he is, there's this moment, and it's actually one of my favorite passages in the second half, um, where he is sad about going from being Dickie to Tom Ripley. And this this is a moment, too, though, where in going to Venice, 
I can't remember if he has like a little brief stay over in Paris too on his way to Venice. I not sort of not like... in Paris. He stops in Trento. Is that where he has a, like a nice dinner? He buys a car in the north of in the north of Italy, um, and right. has a nice dinner and sort of spends a night in the car and marks up a guidebook uh, to make it look as if he right. has been kind of kicking around the north of Italy while Dicky has been in the south, right? right. Murdering this is, Freddie this Miles. Is... Tom Ripley's alibi he's now establishing. Um, that's right. In, and by buying the car, um, he's he's establishing that basically the entire winter from the time Tom and Dickie uh, left um, San Remo, that Tom was just kind of wandering around in northern Italy with a car. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to kind of press fast forward in, in a similar way that that you kind of mentioned. This is Tom in Italy dealing with loose ends. Um, while I was doing my, my plot mapping this morning, there's a section from chapter 19 to chapter 28 that the plot arc that I set for that section is simply called tying up little loose ends. Mm -hmm. um, we, Tom, while he's in Italy, uh, he discovers that um, he, Tom Ripley, has gone missing. Uh, that is written in the newspaper. Um, and he has this impulse at first to go and reveal himself right away. And then it's like, oh, no, no, I shouldn't do that. I should wait right. until it's in a few more newspapers, which he does. And this kind of helps establish his alibi that he's been kicking around in the north. And, and he has been out of contact and hadn't heard anything about what's been going on. Um He's pretty much trying to get the police to think that Dickie murdered Freddie pretty much through reverse psychology by trying to get them to think that um, there's no way that Dickie would have done anything like this um, while he's continuing to add clues that, in fact, Dickie did kill Freddie. Um, there, there's a real subplot in this book where, where Tom imagines that it is Dickie who killed Freddie mm. because it was Tom play acting as Dickie at that moment. Um, Marge may be a problem um, as Tom begins to kind of uh, to kind of test run this idea that uh, Dickie killed himself. Uh, and uh, Marge arrives in Venice where Tom thinks that he might actually have to uh, kill Marge as well. Um, and uh, he goes to some parties. Mr. Greenleaf shows up in Venice. Uh, Marge discovers Dickie's rings in one of uh, one of the bags that Tom has. And uh, Tom says, oh, he gave those to me. Uh, he seemed really down, uh, which is and Marge thinks, oh, maybe he really did uh, kill himself. A private investigator that Mr. Greenleaf uh, has hired shows up from America and uh, does some investigating and interrogating. Um, and um, yeah, I'll let you wrap up the uh, the last couple of chapters. The other thing that does happen plot wise is at one point he has to meet with a couple of police officers who were the same police officers who interrogated him when he was uh, pretending to be Dicky. And it's it's interesting. I think it's kind of a stand in for how Patricia Highsmith is trying to make us believe that Tom gets away with this um, because we're meant to understand that Tom basically is able to transform himself 
back to Tom Ripley. He darkens his hair a little bit. He had dyed it, but he basically just changes his posture and his way of speaking. And it's one of those things where it's like, that seems unlikely. And yet, I think this is one of those moments where the author is just asking us to believe something, and I guess we just have to believe it. And we have to understand that Tom is good at this kind of thing. Um, So there's a moment where he's interviewed by those two two police officers, and they don't recognize that he's the same guy they talked to several months earlier. Um, So that happens. Uh, Mr. Greenleaf has shown up, as you said, and, and basically Tom's strategy for getting away with this murder is convincing everybody that Dickie uh, killed himself, um, which isn't a very good strategy, and yet it seems to be working. But then Tom does a couple things, and one is the police are no, no longer saying he can't leave. He decides to go to Greece. He really wants to go to Greece. And another thing that happens is he gets really, really bold, and I think when he was in Sicily... He had written a will in Dickie's handwriting and put it in an envelope that said, do not open till June or something like that. And so now he writes a letter to the Greenleafs who have gone home and says, um, I don't know what to do. I just found this will. Uh, it's so strange, but it... Uh, your son, Dickie, who died under mysterious circumstances and really only saw me among very few other people during that time, seems to have left all of his money to me. Weird. I don't know what to do about this. And then actually very cleverly, I think, gets on the boat for Greece, uh, sort of drops that bomb and then doesn't stick around. Um, And he goes to Greece and he befriends this older lady um, and... Tom seems kind of happy for once in his life. Um, And he is also reflecting on how much luck he's had getting away with these two murders recently, which I think is a little bit of lampshading on the part of Patricia Heisman. So there's a little bit of that going on. And then he shows up in Greece and he's expecting to be arrested and he's not arrested. And he gets a letter uh, from the Greenleaf saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We're not surprised that uh, Dickie left you his money and uh, we're going to go ahead and make sure you get the money. Um, And that's pretty much the end of the book, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You and I used to have a joke uh, back when we lived in Maine together, and uh, there was a there was a real possibility that we would kind of see each other regularly, and uh, we had this wonderful joke uh, where we would say "El año próximo" in Brunswick, <laughs> you know, or like insert some like northeastern place that you know was not Havana, which is what that saying is supposed to be "El año próximo" in Havana. Or, or, I mean, I think as we, we would perhaps say at Passover next year in Jerusalem. And my my joke subtitle about this book is El Año Proximo and Greece. Uh, <laughs> because God damn it, if Greece is not this like white whale of for Tom, that yeah. there's this like, like all through the book, there has been this like, Greece, Greece, Greece. Maybe we're going to well, finally get to Greece. Well, remember, Dickie wanted to go there, too, and buy a house there. That's true. That is a very good point. Um, yeah, that's probably where I'd forgotten that. But I think that that is, uh, that that is where that is coming from. Um, but you've got an observation here about Henry James's novel, The Ambassadors. Um, actually, you referred to this novel 
as a kind of mystery novel in reverse uh, last time. And you said part of what you think some of the weaknesses are is that it's not necessarily a very good mystery novel in reverse because the suspense around whether or not Tom is going to get away with it, which is what the second half of the book about, is actually not very suspenseful. And I think I probably mostly agree with that, too. Although I will point out um, the novel that made Patricia Highsmith famous, which had been published just a year or two before this one was Strangers on a Train, where a somewhat sympathetic character commits a murder, seems like he's going to get away with it for the entire second half of the book, and then does not. And so perhaps Patricia Highsmith was leaning in the expectations set by that novel a little bit, too. You know, maybe maybe it would be a little bit more suspenseful. Um, but my observation about The Ambassadors is I actually really think that one way of looking at this novel is it is sort of a coming-of-age novel, not unlike something like Great Expectations or Oliver Twist or The Goldfinch or even The Ambassadors. And really, if you look at the plot of The Ambassadors, I haven't actually read The Ambassadors. I don't know. Have you, have you read it? I've not read it. I, I definitely went and did like a pretty thorough kind of like plot um, investigation. And I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, this is very similar. <laughs> Me too. Me too. And if it's so... Basically, in The Ambassadors, a young man, no, not a young man, a man is sent to Europe to try to bring a wayward son back uh, by a wealthy um, uh, woman. In this case, the man is actually engaged to this woman, and he's quite a bit older. I think he's in his 50s. Um, but when he gets to Europe, he's maybe intending to try to do that, but he actually finds that he rather likes Europe, and he rather likes the young man's life there, and he gets brought into that person's social scene and really sort of discovers more about who he is and how he wants to live. Um, and is given the opportunity to kind of uh, climb the social ladder while there. So it's really the same novel in, in that sense. Although it's also really not, um, because uh, there's no murder in The Ambassadors. Um, and also, interestingly, though, I think it's interesting that both novels start in a very similar way, in that they also... In both novels, the plans actually go awry in interesting ways, which is, I think, what give both novels their juice and their interest. But I do think you can see this novel plot-wise, and maybe it's a little bit more interesting if you're trying to see this novel's virtues. If you think of the second half as Tom becoming more comfortable with Tom... I think that's actually the most interesting part of the second half of the book, and that is sort of part of what happens. And it's it's tragic because the way he becomes more comfortable is by murdering somebody, impersonating him, and stealing his wealth. Um, but he, it, it's also, there's something triumphant about that, too. And it reminds me a little bit of that short story... Um, Oh, it's the Russian uh, Chekhov's short story. I think is it Chekhov? It's about the um, the woman who is like in the, riding riding the spring oh, roads in, in, in the um, in the cart. Yeah, um, yeah. It reminds yeah. me a little bit of that. I think it's Chekhov too, right? And basically, not much happens except for at the very end, she has this moment where suddenly she becomes a little bit more comfortable with who she is, and it's believable in that moment. And then it's gone. It's and, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's so Chekhovian. Wow. There's this like, like the sun, like there's like this brief moment of sun that like, war I think a train is passing. 
Like she the train is passing, the train and she sees a woman who looks like her mother, and the sun is lit her up beautifully. And she suddenly remembers being on the train station 20 years ago in Moscow when she was a beautiful young woman. Oh, it's too much. It's too yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a section that sort of leaps off of what you were talking sure, about? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, Tom yeah. kind of becoming himself. I do. I do, actually. I have one marked. Um Okay, so he's on the boat headed for Greece, and he sent the will, uh, the forged will, I should say, uh, to uh, Dickie's parents, and he's been enjoying just kind of walking this old lady, Mrs. Cartwright, around the deck every night and talking with her and her daughter, and they kind of bicker a little bit, and Tom has become kind of like a little pet of this woman, and uh, one's not sure if she, he even really likes the daughter, he just likes the old lady, it seems like. Um, maybe Mrs. Cartwright had been a hellcat in her youth, Tom thought. Maybe she was responsible for every one of her daughter's neuroses. Maybe she had clutched her daughter so closely to her that it had been impossible for the daughter to lead a normal life and marry. And maybe she deserved to be kicked overboard instead of walked around the deck and listened to for hours while she talked. But what did it matter? Did the world always mete out just desserts? Had the world meted his out to him? He considered that he had been lucky beyond reason in escaping detection for two murders, lucky from the time he had assumed Dickie's identity until now. If the first part of his life, fate had been grossly unfair, he thought, the period with Dickie and afterwards had more than compensated for it, and something was going to happen now in Greece, he felt, and it couldn't be good. His luck had held just too long, but supposing... They got him on the fingerprints and on the will, and they gave him the electric chair. Would that death in the electric chair equal in pain? Or could death itself at 25 be so tragic that he could not say that the months from November until now had not been worth it? Certainly not. What a monster. <laughs> <laughs> My God. I, I hope, I really hope Patricia Highsmith's life was not terrible. Oh, I, um, well, that's interesting. Um, I think she was very uncomfortable for much of her life. Um, although she, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. It's an amazing yeah. passage because you're right. Like it, it's the only, it's one of the few times that we see Tom comfortable with himself and he has missed the fucking point about fate. Like, well, yeah. I mean, like has the world meted out? It's, it's just desserts to him. No, no. Like the just desserts are you getting caught, you like identity thieving, murderous asshole. I, I mean, like I just I mean, I, I, you know, I think the place where we maybe differ on this book is that I just hate this person. Yeah. Um, and I do not root for him in any way. I was I was I was surprised how much I was rooting for him to get caught and being frustrated with the dramatic irony that I knew he was not going to get caught. And um, and that made it sort of pleasant in a melancholy kind of way, the way that I would enjoy like a Chekhov, a Chekhov book where it's like it is heartbreaking and sad. Yeah. Um, but it's like it's like perverted and flip flopped. To me, that passage really reminds me of Friedrich Nietzsche's argument in what I think how I understood his argument in The Birth of Greek Tragedy, where he was basically, I, as I understood it, he was saying the Greeks liked stories where terrible things happened to good people because 
what it meant was that it didn't matter if you were good or bad, or it didn't matter if you did what the gods wanted you to do. Uh, that that fate had no relationship to morality, and therefore we were all free. Um, I, I, and I think that I think Tom's having a similar realization. I think he's feeling free, and you're right; he doesn't deserve it. But it is also kind of interesting to me that this is that it's sort of like this taking this reckless act, doing these terrible things, and getting away with them. I, it, it's the portrait of somebody realizing who he is and how he wants to live. And he even decides, even if I don't get away with it, it was worth it. And it, there's something profound there, even if it's profoundly bad. I mean, this is the flip-flop of a Greek tragedy. Good things are happening to terrible people. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And, and again, as much as I dislike Tom Ripley, like I, I keep coming back to this, hats off to P Patricia Highsmith. Because yeah. she's not only she's not only a master craftswoman in terms of her sentences. Um, I mean, this this is she has really got under my skin with Tom Ripley, and um, and has sort of in like done something. You, you spend the book being like, no, no, <laughs> like he's going to get away again, um, and uh, it's it's pretty impressive that that's what she decided to go after. Well, can I ask? Is part of your horror with Tom Ripley, well, let me back up. That passage you read last time where he decides to kill Dickie was actually one of my least favorite passages the first time I read the book. When I read it the second time, I think I saw more of what you saw in it, which was like a pretty accurate and horrific walking through of the kind of rationalization some people can do around bad behavior. So I'm curious, though, so part of the reason I didn't like it is it just didn't resonate with me at all. You know, I was used to the Matt Damon, Anthony Miguel movie where, yes, Tom Ripley is angry at Dickie. Yes, he's jealous. Yes, he has an unrequited attraction and he's feeling anger about that. But he doesn't actually mean to kill him. That's sort of an accident. And when he does it, he feels terrible about it, which I actually think is kind of relatable. And maybe in, in my mind, a more relatable story than choosing to kill your like best friend of six weeks ago just because you're kind of pissed, you know, and want to take his rings. Um, so part of the reason I didn't like that passage so much the first time was that it just didn't feel relatable to me. It just felt like it was out of the blue. Reading it the second time with the subtext of Tom's sublimated homosexuality and his attraction, I could see it coming more clearly this time and it made a lot more sense but i guess is part of your revulsion that ripley seems all too real to you yes short answer <laughs> what's the long can you give me the long answer if or is it yeah. too pers is it too personal no is no it it's not it's not just personal it's there's aspects of it that are personal um mm. I mean, I think we all have done premeditated things in our lives that we are not proud of. Mm -hmm. And when we go back and examine those things, I think we do a lot of justification. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, like, oh, this happened and that happened. And, and I think what is so chilling about that passage is that we're, we're watching that happen in real time. We're yeah. watching Tom come up with the idea and then begin justifying it in the moment. 
Um, and I think we've all done things like that. All things that we are, are it, it, it's not as far as murder and identity theft, but you realize that Highsmith is probably trying to raise the stakes to a point where we're actually going to pay attention. I mean, this is a book about kind of bad decisions on top of bad decisions mm. that eventually turn out right. And I think personally, um, having tried to come back from a lot of the bad decisions in my life and learn from them, watching somebody make those bad decisions and then be rewarded for them like strikes at the heart of, of what I find really offensive. Mm. And I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of that um, in, in, in the world. I mean, the world is unfair and a lot yeah. of times people are rewarded for bad behavior. Um, and I think it's impressive that in the middle fifties that Patricia Highsmith kind of wanted to talk about. Well, let me then ask you, is this a great writer choosing to write a book about a character who does not deserve to be a protagonist and you're offended by that? Or is it a great writer and a great book? It's just a book that makes you very uncomfortable. It's almost a great book. Mm. It's a great writer, a good book, and a character that makes me uncomfortable. The reason it's not a great book is the, the plot and narrative structure of the second half. And what, what could be done then? Um, I mean, what if it was, is it simply a matter of he should, like, there's all sorts of plotting things you could do to put him in more jeopardy and make it seem like he's going to get caught more. Like, he could, and in fact, the Minghella movie does that, right? Like, puts him in contact with people who think, you know, he's in a situation where there's somebody over there who knows him as Tom Ripley, and there's someone over there who thinks he's Dickie Greenleaf, and he has to deal with that. Or put him in a situation where he might get caught in one of his lies. Or the cops... The Italian police could even look at his fucking registration papers, which all you have to do is be like, oh, Mr. Signor Ripley, may I see your registration? <laughs> yes. You know, it says that it was done in May, but you say that you were traveling around the north in February in this very same car. Why is your, you know, like, or they could be like, can you produce one single hotelier who has seen you in the north of Italy? Can you remember the name of one single city where you stayed in one? We'll go and, you know, they could have caught him. There's plenty of evidence against him if they had only looked. So would have making his peril greater made it a better book? Yes. My, my problem with the second half of this book, um, whenever you're escalating tension, um, in you know each each chapter you want to escalate one main plot thread tension and probably a secondary plot tension you know so like the big thrust of what you're work of what you're working on you do need to escalate the tension there and then maybe like a secondary plot tension maybe escalate that too but probably not every chapter because then you're just then you're just turning every dial every chapter it, it, and... it would get fatiguing right it would just exactly yeah. it would be kind you, of like you, dan brown or something like that exactly yeah or, or spinal tap yeah <laughs> <laughs> everything's 11 all the time exactly yeah yeah whenever i need a little more tension i just i just turn it you know the other bands will ratchet the tension to 10 but i just put it at 11 I just take all the knobs and I turn them all to 11. All to 11. <laughs> yeah. 
um and she did there's a few downbeat chapters yeah. that are you know chapter 19 she gets to sicily tom's in control um and nothing really gets escalated there and you need that mm-hmm. you need mm-hmm. upbeats and downbeats um there is another downbeat chapter um 27 uh when he talks with the private investigator mccarran um, yeah. There are a lot of echoes of the first chapter. They go to a bar. Tom is really worried about getting caught. And there's a, a question and answer with an older American man. Very, very redolent of the first chapter. And McCarran just buys it. Yeah. He's like, okay. And I, I think what happened to Highsmith in the second half of this book is she, and this happens to writers all the time, yeah. You you get attached to your characters and you kind of want good things to happen to them. And yeah. you shy away from those moments when what you really need to be doing is turning up the pressure on them. Yeah. Um, I do not know what some of those other choices she would she could have made, but it's not incumbent upon me to come up with those. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> no, no. You're, when, whenever you're rewriting the book, <laughs> something went wrong. <laughs> Yeah, um, exactly. And unless I mean, you're unless just, you're Anthony Mangella, the screenwriter, and you're taking some good source material and you're making it even better. Yeah, but I, I you know, so I, I went through and um, kind of in the second half of the book did a little column per chapter of like, okay, what is the obstacle that Tom has to overcome? So mm-hmm. chapter sixteen, getting rid of the body, he needs to make Freddie seem drunk. Um, in chapter 17, the investigator shows up. He needs to avoid notice while he's in Rome. Um, I mean, now I, and I'll say, sorry to interrupt. I would say, like, all that's pretty good in terms of escalating the danger and the tension. Like, this this, this part is pretty good in terms of, like, yeah, Tom's in trouble and he's got to think fast and, and all of that. Exactly. And then he comes up on the idea, how do I avoid detection? I become Tom again. And, like, that... I think could have been because those are some of the sections that you really found winning of, of Tom realizing that he has to become himself again and not really liking it and then kind of liking it and sort of buffing Tom Ripley into something more. Um, and that would have been great, but instead we get the bank remittances are, are, are forged. And so, okay, we got to do some things with there. Oh, Marge shows back up. We got to deal with her. Maybe I need to beat her to death with my shoe and drop her in the canal. Um, oh, oh, I need to get all of these lies right about Dickie's money and not get caught. Um, uh, then uh, the rings, um, the rings show up. I got to come up with a plausible story about the rings. Do I need to kill Marge? Oh, no, she solves it for me because she just buys my description then mccarran buys the 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 um uh the story uh, and then the goddamn suitcases get discovered the dreams of greece are shattered will the investigation be reopened no <laughs> with tom's fingerprints all over them yet another opportunity i think it's okay if either mccarran or the italian police were incompetent but not both you know like, and I want to point to something here, which is that McCarran and the Italian police are both what would have been considered kind of like white ethnics, like non-wasp. And Patricia Highsmith was a wasp. And from what I've read, she 
she was both kind of kind of like Tom, kind of like resented her social class, but also had all the prejudices of a wasp. And I think we're supposed to believe that McCarran is not very competent because he's Irish and that the Italian police are not very competent because they're Italian. I think, and I'm hesitant to use the word racist because it's not really race, although it is racist because it's about who the whitest white people are. Uh, It is white supremacist and it's a belief that, yeah, maybe the Irish and Italians are, they're part of the white club, but they're like, they have to ride coach class in the white boat, you know? Um, And I think we're just supposed to accept that the, and, you know, maybe it's possible that Italian police are notoriously... She does say that the French police were better than the Italians. And um, so maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's a little bit of an anthropological uh, observation she's making. But then in that case, McCarran should be really on the ball, right? You know, like that should ratchet up the stakes. And the other thing that's happening that also, to me, occasionally makes it good in the second half is that Tom has pangs of guilt. And... Those are good moments when Tom has pangs of guilt. And I even think it's okay that they're few and far between because so much of what Tom experiences is repressed and subtextual. So it's okay to me that Tom is not walking around a nervous wreck from guilt all the time. But I think the second half would be better uh, if there was more guilt. But I, can I read you one of my other favorite passages from the second half, which gets through totally. hopefully, hopefully I'm not stepping... Okay, so Tom is talking with this sort of friendly English guy he's gotten to know in Venice, uh, Peter. And they're you, just... I think, you might, I think you might have grabbed... Uh, this is going to be great if we have the same <laughs> passage uh, that we are going to talk about. Are you, are you okay with me reading it, or would you rather oh, yeah, be the one? absolutely. Okay. No, no, no. So he's talking with Peter. Oh, he has this moment where he realizes that if he needed to, he could probably murder Peter and imitate him. And then he feels bad about it because unlike Dickie and unlike Freddie and unlike Marge, he doesn't resent Peter at all. Peter's been nothing but a sweetheart to him. He likes Peter. And so he has this moment of guilt. And this seems to kind of trigger him realizing some of the enormity of what he did to Dickie. Um, And he says, Peter asks him some question and Tom responds, thanks. I'd I'd better stay by myself for a while longer. I miss my friend Dickie. You know, I miss him terribly. He was suddenly near tears. He could remember Dickie's smiles that first day they began to get along, when he had confessed to Dickie that his father had sent him. He remembered their crazy first trip to Rome. He remembered with affection even that half hour in the Carlton Bar in Cannes when Dickie had been so bored and silent. But there had been a reason why Dickie had been bored. After all, he had dragged Dickie there. And Dickie didn't care for the Côte d'Azur. Côte d'Azur. If he'd only gotten his sightseeing done by himself, Tom thought, if only he hadn't been in such a hurry and so greedy, if he only hadn't misjudged the relationship between Dickie and Marge so stupidly, or had simply waited for them to separate of their own volition, then none of this would have happened. And he could have lived with Dickie for the rest of his life traveled and lived and enjoyed living for the rest of his life. If only he hadn't put on Dickie's clothes that day. I understand, Tommy boy, I really do, Peter said, patting his shoulder. Tom looked up at him through distorting tears. He was imagining traveling with Dickie on some liner back to America for Christmas holiday, imagining being on good terms with Dickie's parents as if he and Dickie had been brothers. Thanks, Tom said. 
came out a childlike blub. I'd really think something was the matter with you if you didn't break down like this, Peter said sympathetically. End of chapter. It's it's where she's at her best. You know, I I had this chat, I had this passage mm-hmm. too, and and what I wish the second half of the first of all, I wish the second half of the book were shorter. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think we need the same amount of of basically denouement as yeah. we did with with rising action and climax, because um, the the climax happens when he kills Dicky and kills Freddie. Those are the, the those are the the animating climaxes of the book, and everything else is is figuring out what happens. Um, the the misunderstanding that ends amicably uh, at, at the end of this chapter between him and Peter is just a masterstroke, mm-hmm. um, where we get to see Tom's guilt and his monstrousness um, at the same time. Right, because he's misrepresenting, he's using his guilt and recasting it as mourning and absorbing sympathy for that. I, You know, he's also... I think I think we're meant to understand he really is profoundly sad in that moment. He is regretful of what he did. It's the first time he expresses any regret for it. He acknowledges it was kind of his fault, um, at least in the sense that he was like, if only... He never says, if only I hadn't decided to kill Dickie. But he does say, if only we hadn't been on that terrible trip. And then the other thing that just punches me in the stomach really hard about that section is he imagines living the rest of his life with Dickie, but he still can't admit to himself his attraction. So he's just like, just like brothers. You know, Patricia Highsmith was a lesbian... She's very well acquainted with same-sex attraction. I think we're meant to understand that he is attracted and in love with Dickie, and he still can't admit that. And so even in his fantasy life, in which he hadn't murdered Dickie, they would just be like brothers traveling around. Yeah, I think I think this book is really about control. And we talked about that last time, the section mm. that he loses control of the boat. And what you're talking about is his his unraveling control of his attraction yeah. um, trying to keep it you know under control uh and the the section the passage i wanted to read was his dream mm-hmm. um and um yeah this is on uh in my in my edition page 156 it's uh, the end of chapter 17 okay scene dissolved in swirling yellow grayness the color of the sand in Mongebello. Tom saw Dickie smiling at him, dressed in the corduroy suit that he had worn in San Remo. The suit was soaking wet, the tie a dripping string. Dickie bent over him, shaking him. I swam, he said. Tom, wake up. I'm all right. I swam. I'm alive. Tom squirmed away from his touch. He heard Dickie laugh at him. Dickie's happy, deep laugh. Tom. The timbre of the voice was dipper, deeper richer, better than Tom had ever been able to make it in his imitations. Tom pushed himself up. His body felt leaden and slow, as if he was trying to raise himself out of deep water. I swam, Dickie's voice shouted, ringing and ringing in Tom's ears as if he had been through a long tunnel. Mm -hmm. Tom looked around the room, looking for Dickie in the yellow light under the bridge lamp, in the dark corner by the tall wardrobe. Tom felt his own eyes stretched wide, terrified, and although and though he knew his fear was senseless, he kept looking everywhere for Dickie. 
below the half-drawn shades at the window and on the floor on the other side of the bed. He hauled himself up from the bed, staggered across the room, and opened a window. Then the other window. He felt drugged. Somebody put something in my wine, he thought suddenly. He knelt below the window, breathing the cold air in, fighting the grogginess as if it were something that was going to overcome him if he didn't exert himself to the utmost. Finally, he went to the bathroom and wet his face at the basin. The grogginess was going away. He knew he hadn't been drugged. He had let his imagination run away with him. He had been out of control. Mm. There's yeah. moments like that one, the boat, the passage that you just read, where we we get, I, I just want, I want, I think those to be brought up to 11. And I want the 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 sort of like, almost farcical nature of like the bumbling Italian investigators and McCarran, who's like this sort of like Peter Sellers-esque kind of like group and Marge comes across as pathetic. I want less of that. Um, and, and certainly I want, I don't want the one of the final notes to be rung to be again, oh, suitcases have been discovered. Don't worry about it. Like, I, mean, I, I wish the book were 60 pages shorter and more of the stuff that you and I are talking about right now. I, I, I feel like a broken record, but like, I really think that the Mengele movie d delivers everything that you're talking about, right? You know, I think you're totally right. I totally and, agree. And, and, and one of the ways it fixes it is that Marge actually kind of figures out what happened. And, and she tries to tell Herbert Greenleaf and she tries to tell the detective and they don't believe her because they're just sexist. They're just like, she's hysterical. And, and you're just like, oh my God, it's so heartbreaking. Um, and I mean, you know, the other thing, well, I don't know if you remember the very last scene from that movie, um, but you get another moment of, what did you call it? Of climax, of emotional climax because of what Tom needs to do to escape his predicament in that moment is, is heartbreaking and, and heart-wrenching. Yeah, and I think we're kind of, I don't know, I think we're kind of there. Well, I guess I thought you were going to say, you ended up on the side of this is a good book, even though the character makes me uncomfortable, but that's not necessarily bad. So I was prepared to mount a defense for characters that make you uncomfortable. Um, and I love I love characters that make me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but I I don't know. You did refer to yourself as being Ripley'd out right now. I mean, I feel like this book got to you in a way that maybe goes beyond. You told me last time that you hated Ripley, and I confessed that I kind of found him charming a little bit, even though I thought what he did was wrong. I spent like the last two weeks being like, "Am I a less evolved moral person than Chris Bag?" Because Chris Bag is no. morally correct. And I am morally incorrect here. Like, like clearly, like, and so I was thinking about that. And I guess, you know, I think there's two things going on. And one is that I guess I do feel fairly comfortable with my instinctual morality. Um, I do hurt people, but usually it's by accident because I'm clumsy and miss subtexts and things like that. Or I'm too much of a coward to say directly what I really think. So I allow people to go on thinking the wrong thing for too long in a way that is certainly bad, but not at all malicious. I don't think I'm a malicious person. Um, and I'm comfortable in that. And so maybe 
part of it is that there is something fun and seductive about being able to deal with the people in your life who bother you and confine you and restrict you and limit your autonomy in a way that breaks the normal social rules. There's a power in that, and it can be fun to imagine yourself doing that from time to time, which is, I think, like the same reason there are a lot of movies about hitmen and, you know, or or even like heist movies with jewel thieves and people like that who are breaking the rules to get what they want and sort of living this life. But I do think there is something to a seductive, immoral character. I think there's something about being sucked into that and feeling like, oh, I'm rooting for Ripley to get away with it, or I'm rooting for Walter White to get away with it. Um, I'm assuming you've watched Breaking Bad. I actually haven't, which is oh, okay. insane. Okay, well, interesting. So I'll just say, you know the premise of Breaking Bad? <laughs> I do, I do. Listener, a seemingly normal, nice person cooks meth uh, and sells it to make money, and in so doing has to, finds himself committing murder to protect his business. I hope that doesn't give Be too much away. Because he's dying of cancer. Um, and that is something that is absent from Tom. We get some sense of Tom's wounds. Yeah. We don't know if they are completely accurate, because he is unreliable. We don't yeah. know if his stories about Aunt Dottie are, are correct. Um, and in a lot of like movies or books like that, where we end up cheering for the, the bad guys, um, the creator has done some sort of effective legwork yeah. to make us realize like, oh, there is, there is an enemy here and this is actually the protagonist. Um, and I think this just go, this is another one in the column of Patricia Highsmith is amazing in that she is able to craft something that that really is is so close to being a great book without doing that for tom yeah like he's yeah. just he's just a bad guy and um and he wins and um i think probably the background that i am bringing to it as an an, an alcoholic who has done some insanely horrible things mm. uh while i've been drunk I don't, I, I do, I, I enjoyed this book. I read it with like a sort of, um, like with an eye towards craft. Uh, I think that a, a, a bad person getting away and not having to make amends for the things that he did sticks in my craw a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is probably the close to homeness that you're picking up on. Fair enough. With both this and Breaking Bad, I think the experience I have of it is that sense of being charmed by the person doing the bad thing, often for me at least, as a fairly introspective reader or watcher, is fleeting. So I might feel that way at first, but generally at some point I stop feeling that way. Maybe it's the second time I read it in this case, or with Breaking Bad, that, that series, I don't want to spoil it too much for you, but the main character has this thing that he often says to justify the things that he's doing, which is everything I'm doing, I'm doing it for my family, which one senses he believes at first, but there's enough evidence that that's not entirely true and that he actually enjoys what he's doing and he enjoys the power that you feel. And without, again, spoiling, you know, the murders that he does, some of them 
he seems to be doing, you know, killing bad people for self-defense. But then you, you get the backstory of some of those people and you realize that they're doing the things they're doing to protect their business much the same way that he's doing them. And you, at a certain point, what that makes you start thinking about is maybe actually most criminals are doing things for understandable and relatable reasons out of desperation. And what does that say about me as somebody who doesn't do those things and is judgy about those people? Maybe it just means I haven't been put in that kind of desperate circumstance. Maybe that means as I've gotten to know our criminal justice system a little bit better in the last few years, that the sense that some people have of contentment that, you know, certain people are in jail for 30 or 40 years or prison, maybe we ought to be thinking about that a little bit and whether those punishments we're doling out are actually addressing the circumstances that lead to crime and violence. And I think all of that is what good books should be making us think about, right? Like these are all good things for art to take us to. And I'm glad Highsmith, I'm glad Highsmith took me on this ride. I just think that she could have cut a little bit more and actually would have deepened the interest of, of the book. That's my final, that's where I kind of end on it. So do you want to go to trivia? Sure. Why don't you do yours first? Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about The Ambassadors by Henry James, and you said that you had dove into the plot, so you should be able to get this one. It's an Ambassadors Ooh. question. Um, uh, the question is, Tom Ripley uh, is able to a a ascend uh, in the social ladder in class. He comes into money through essentially murder and forgery and deception. Um, what is the means that the main character, whose name is Louis Stetler, uh, intends to use to also climb the social ladder in the ambassadors? I, I think it's a I think it's I think it's marriage. Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting, what's interesting, and I, I kind of want to read this novel now, is that it's his fiance who is wealthy, who sends him to Europe. And then while he's there enjoying himself, the guy, his fiance's daughter, who he's supposed to bring back, sets him up with a wealthy uh, European woman who he um, might marry to also. So it's not only is that his strategy, it's his only strategy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only strategy he seems to have available to him. I love um, that. That is such a Henry James name, Lewis Stetler. Um, yeah. You know, as the, the names in this book are just are top drawer. I, I can't, yeah. I can't. They, they just, um, yeah. I mean, they're they're Gatsby esque, um, and I think this book does owe a debt to to the great Gatsby. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, my trivia for you. The book ends uh, with a piece of dialogue, um, like any like any good piece of writing should mm. end with a piece of dialogue. Um, to a hotel, please, Tom said. Il Meglio Albergo. Il Meglio. Il Meglio. Did you look up? Do you know what that means? Well, albergo is a word um, I know from cognates that that basically means a inn or a hotel. Um, will you read it to me one more time? To a hotel, please, Tom said. Il Meglio Albergo. Il Meglio. Il Meglio. Il Meglio is two words, right? I-L Meglio? Yep. I-L space M-E-G-L-I-O. Oh, man. I'm going to try. I didn't look it up. I'm going to try to puzzle it out, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it. 
Um, I'm tempted to say it just it means something like the nearest, you know, which would sort of make sense in this case because Tom doesn't care. But the fact that the porter is yelling it um, to me suggests it's sort of like an infamous hotel. Meglio, Meglio, what is that? Uh, for some reason, the word that's coming to mind is mirage. Mm. But that would fit for this book. That would be perfect if he was uh, if he was saying like like take me to the Mirage Hotel, which would be a little a little you know a little on too the nose. Much. Yeah. Um, yeah, a little too on the nose. Uh, it means uh, the best. Oh, um, he basically says to a hotel, please. Uh, Tom said the best hotel, the best, the best. Yeah, I, I, I just I think it's a I think it is just I, I just think it's another masterstroke. Um, well, he's euphoric because he got away with it and he got the money and he's wallowing in his luck and fortune. And what he wants is the best of things. Like that yeah. is what Tom is motivated by. Um, and um, yeah, and she lands the pl- she lands the plane with a slightly shaky and a little repetitive second half um, yep. in a re- in a really wonderful way. And oh, my God, those sections with Mrs. Cartwright on the boat to France, to Greece. I also adore. I, I loved those. Maybe she yep. should be pushed over the edge. I was like, what? <laughs> now, are there any characters in this book who Tom does not at least briefly consider murdering? <laughs> it's just. I mean, like, yes, I find him distasteful, but moments like that, um, the, the sort of gleeful moments where, where and then he sort of tosses them away, which which means there is a shred of humanity left. So I think that brings us to the end of what we have going for uh, for our episode on the talent of Mr. Ripley. Thanks for listening, everyone out there. Uh, please don't forget to uh, rate and review the show. That really helps a lot. Again, if you give us a five-star review, we will read it aloud on the air. Uh, you can get in contact with us at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com and bag, B-A-G-G, at uppermiddlebrow.com. And you can visit us on the web at uppermiddlebrow.com. Nailed it. here it's a cold clear windy night in portland which is kind of strange for us this time of year but all of us are happy for a little sun instead of the rain i'm headed up to the mountain tomorrow for the first cross-country ski of the year and as i was getting home tonight i could hear the christmas steam engine that runs along the willamette just a few blocks away blowing its whistle so uh yeah the holidays are approaching We just wanted to thank you for listening. We've reached the end of our pilot episodes on Snow Crash and the Talented Mr. Ripley, and we were planning to head into our next group of three books, a miniseries we call The Future Sucks, starting with Jennifer Egan's 2010 novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. But since the 30th anniversary of Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash was just two weeks ago, which was the day we launched, Astute Listeners, we thought that maybe we could spend a little bit more time in Stevenson's world. There's another podcast that examines and celebrates Stevenson's novels, so we're aiming to forge a friendly rivalry with them. And we'll be reading three early Stevenson novels over the next seven episodes. 
1986 eco-thriller, Zodiac, the remarkable and underrated, in my opinion, The Diamond Age, and his 1999 hit, Cryptonomicon. So we will see you next time for more Stevenson. In the meantime, Upper Middle Brow is a Small Point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes, creators and producers. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And you can find us on Instagram at uppermiddlebrow and on Twitter at uppermiddlepod. Now that we've finished our pilot episodes, we would like to thank heartily one last time our pilot listeners. Justin Reich, Catherine Nagasawa, Adam Brock, Robert Lorzell, Jenny Grieve, and Josh Lieberless. So, curl up with a book wherever you are right now and see if you can hear in the very faint distance that steam engine.